All right. Here we go. Quiet. Quiet. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put them all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online, Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Richard Drees. (laughs) And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online, Contributing Editor, Natasha Bogutsky. How's it going, Natasha? Oh, wonderful, darling. Oh, (laughs) You, you saw a movie where somebody spoke in British accents in the past two weeks, haven't you? <laughs> when am I not watching a movie where someone speaks in a British accent? <laughs> okay, yeah, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. That was a silly question. To ask. <laughs> Don't you love it how I always try to open this show a little different every single time? Yes, yes, I love it. I'm, why? I'm, I'm always like, how is she going to say my name this time? And why am I always nervous about that? <laughs> I think I've got one cooked up for a different time that you're going to hate. Oh, goody. <laughs> you will just have to wait and find out. I can't hardly wait. And no, we're not going to talk about that movie. <laughs> uh, we are going to a little bit later on in the show do our review of Cruella, mm. and um, I <laughs> I already know it's going to be a discussion, so um, it's definitely going to be a discussion hate here. You. No, but, but, but. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, first, you know, um, I wanted to get your impressions of because you were never a big late night. Uh, TV person, late night chat shows. You never were a big Saturday Night Live person until I kind of got you watching it. It wasn't just just you. It was also Darren. Um, Yeah, you guys pushed me into it probably, what, two, two and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So so I know we're about a week or two out from the the finale, the season finale for SNL this Mm -hmm. season, Uh, but we haven't really had a chance to kind of talk about it. So, uh, what were your thoughts about, like, this season? Uh, I thought the finale kind of wrapped up fairly well. Uh, it was a strong episode. I don't think there were really any stinker sketches this time around. I thought this final episode, hosted by Anya Taylor-Joy, mm-hmm. was good up until I stopped watching it. Uh, <laughs> n- not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. I uh, just spilled hot chocolate across the keyboard here. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, no, I... I, I didn't stop watching it because of I didn't like it or whatever. I, I stopped watching it just because I had to go back to work. And I forgot to pick it up uh, after work um, when I finally had the time. Mm-hmm. But I got through Weekend Update. And um, if this ends up being Cecily Strong's final year, that was a hell of a way to go out. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, she didn't really have shit. much to do with the... Uh... With the rest of the show, I'll spoil that for you, I guess. This season, but, she, where has she really been? I don't, it's so weird. They have 20 people in the cast, between main cast and support. And it seems like so many people have gotten lost in the shuffle, including a lot of the people from the main cast. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, 
you know, you had A.D. Bryant missing like several episodes at the beginning of the year because she was off shooting her Hulu show. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they kind of brought in um, uh, that new supporting player, Lauren. Lauren Holt. Lauren Holt. Kind of because she kind of looks like A.D. And they can kind of like plug her into the 80 spot, you know, in that those first couple of episodes where they need, you know, a character of that type. I and, don't I don't even remember seeing Lauren. To be honest, she still shows up in the opening credits. And I'm like, who are you? No, she's she pops up every now and then, just not as much. Um she and Andrew Desmukes were the like the two newbies. He kind of started and um Punky Johnson. Oh, Punky Johnson. That's right. Excuse me. Yeah, because she, you know, she got a couple of things. Um, Andrew Desmukes got a couple of things, but they haven't really popped yet. Um, Bowen Yang has got has to be, really shown off. Yeah, he's got to be moved out of support to the main cast. Agreed. As does uh, Chloe Feynman. Agreed yeah, on that. They both deserve, you know, the step up. So it comes to down down to this though. Who, who has maybe had their time and should move on or hasn't proven themselves enough to stick around in the main cast? If you were Lorne Michaels, now if you were Lorne Michaels, how would you prune down that cast? I'd lose... That is my terrible, terrible <laughs> Lorne Michaels impersonation. I would lose Alex Moffat, Kyle Mooney, Mikey Day, um, Andrew Dismukes and Punky Johnson really? and Lauren Holt. Yeah. Wow. Um, I would keep Lauren Holt because I have a feeling eighties. Eighties. It's eighties time to fly. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I was just talking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say eighty and Cecily are done. Yeah. Lose uh, them as well. Cecily definitely, if like you said, if she if this is her last season, she went out on a high note with uh, she drunk, really did. <laughs> drunk Judge Janine, <laughs> splashing wine repeatedly across Colin Jost, and then diving into a I don't know hundred gallon uh, wa- box, box of, of wine. wine. <laughs> it was it was so good, and I was watching it live, so it's like yeah. 1230 or something like that <laughs> and I'm literally holding one of the couch pillows up to my face and screaming with laughter into <laughs> it because I didn't want to wake up anybody else in my apartment building because I was just I was just like <laughs> oh my gosh it was so good um and I thought I thought joke exchange was exceptionally brutal between oh Jost god yeah and Ch- and Michael Chad. every time they do it they it's like they're upping the ante <laughs> Particularly in the race jokes, obviously. Well, That's the race kind jokes of the... are the whole point of it. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> I would just like to use my platform to <laughs> to say this. Woody Allen is innocent. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, they went there. <laughs> and I have to wonder, though, because... Man you know, of they... Steel was not that great of a joke i thought man of steel was hilarious oh i thought that maybe, was maybe it's because i've been a super long time superman fan and just that they do a simple stupid pun of changing s-t-e-e-l to s-t-e-a-l i i, I was just like Bleh. i loved it <laughs> um and um 
<laughs> there were definitely a couple of other jokes I know in there that really got me going. And for the life of me, I can't remember what they are right now. That's okay. Oh, I need um, to rewatch that now, segment. Now, I remember in the cold open, though, when, you know, they go, you know, you know, reflections on the year or whatever it was. And then the first shot is um, 80, Cecily, um, Kate McKinnon, Kate and Keenan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Keenan. The four of them standing there. My first thought was like, oh, my God, they're about to announce they're leaving. Yeah, I I had that feeling as well. And I loved how they Kate kind of got choked up when she said that this is not a cast. This is a family. Mm hmm. And I'm like, oh, shit, here it comes. And then AD says, and like a family, we're kind of sick of each other after this year. We need a break. And I was just like, okay, they say we're, we need a break. That implies they're coming back. Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, oh, oh thank God. <laughs> um, I was, I was thinking like, you know, because I think Kate – is definitely able to go out and just have a, a career. Maybe not le a lead comedy performer in a, in a comedy film, but she's always going to be like the wacky friend or something like that. She might have a lead in like a weird indie. She film. has like Amy Poehler energy to her. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Where Cecily definitely feels like she's got more of the Tina Fey-ness to her, except uh -huh. she's... I don't want to say she doesn't seem as clever or adaptive as Tina Fey with her comedy. True, true. Which is weird because, and sometimes I wonder if we haven't really seen everything Cecily Strong has to offer because she came out of the Groundlings in L.A. Mm -hmm. and you you don't get into the Groundlings and you don't get you know to be a featured performer there if you're not like really good. And, you know, so many people have come out of the Groundlings, you know, you know, going back to like off the top of my head, I'm thinking like uh, Hartman and, you know, people like that. And he was so versatile. And I think they allowed her to be somewhat versatile mm -hmm. with a girl you get stuck talking to at a party and Judge Janine and a couple of other characters. But I, I wonder if we've really allowed, been allowed to see her like totally cut loose. No, I don't think so. Not that I can think of. Yeah. Um, I I dare say she would have a good um good career on a sitcom. As, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I can see her as sitcom fever. Um Melissa Villasenor, though. Um, I know. You you've got a crush on her because of her impersonation. She she's funny as hell. That Dolly Parton thing she did a couple of months back was absolutely brilliant and she's yeah like you said you know that i've said she is a great impressionist and we've seen it you know in interviews that she's done stuff like that and usually on the show she gets to show up in a sketch and has like three or four lines that kind of support things or set up a joke or or be that character who kind of calls out the ridiculousness of what's going on and then and everybody ignores her Mm -hmm. And I can see where it looked like when she had that that Instagram post that she quickly pulled down, where she said, "You know, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with this. Uh, you know, I'm 
tired. I can't remember exactly what the words were, but it was something along the lines of tired of not being uh, used to my potential or something like that. Yeah, and uh, funny enough, she pulled that down and she showed up quite a bit in the the season finale mm-hmm. after after that post uh, was taken down. But again, she was wasted in the season finale. Like the only thing that I can really think of off the top of my head that she's popping out was um was the the sketch in heaven where she was one of the angels who kept pointing out, Oh, that's sick. Oh, that's cool. If, oh yeah, we decided to give him one big toe instead of five toes and what was it? The 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 wangle ding dong and yeah. um uh, and the the dangling pouches or something like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> Can we see it stand up? No, no. <laughs> like she's funny, but she's funny in the way of we give you lines that are going to get dismissed. Mm-hmm. And she makes a meal out of those. Yeah, but that's not going to be memorable enough to keep you going. I know, and it's unfortunate. I think because I've you know I've even seen some of her stand up. And she's, you know, she's solid, mm-hmm. I think. I'm just not sure that ultimately SNL is the right fit for her. And she's been there for five years. Yeah. Um, Others, have, uh, the main cast has really been there for almost like nine. And do you, can you name me who the, who the longest running uh, uh, person in front of the camera we saw in the finale. I'd like to say it's Keenan because he's been there. Uh, hold on. Okay. Keenan because I said I'd like to see oh. it's Keenan because I know he's the longest tenured of the performers, but how I, I <laughs> how much do you want to bet it was um the the gentleman who came out and said, "Yeah, I didn't even get a line all season." In the cold open? Yeah. Yep. That's Akira Yosamura, if I'm remembering the name absolutely correctly. And he has been the production designer on the show since the very first season. Anytime they've done a Star Trek sketch, he's played Sulu every <laughs> single time. With the exception of I think they recently within like the last year or two did a Star Trek sketch. And Bo, Bo and Yang. Bo and Yang played Sulu, which which actually kind of disappointed me because they've done a ton of Star Trek sketches over the years. And um, they've always had this guy come back in and play Sulu. And I love that. And he's been like, he's not a performer. He just kind of gets on there, says his lines, tries not to look too uncomfortable. And I love that they keep bringing him back on for that. It It's just like one of those weird little things that if you're, you know, once you see enough Saturday Night Live, you pick up and go, wait a minute, isn't that the... And I just love that, you know, they brought him back for that joke in the cold open. <laughs> and I, I literally kind of like jumped up off the couch. I was like, wait, what? I was so happy with that. Yeah. This is my first line all season. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> wait, did they do a... Star- was the Star Trek sketch this season? Maybe that could be almost a callback to the fact that he didn't get to do it this time. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe, so... but um no they're they're definitely this this year was weird in terms of comedy on saturday night live there were some good episodes there were some terrible episodes mm. um there were some that were just kind of 
okay. Um, not really memorable, but not forgettable. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of meh. The Elon Musk one, I think everybody was bracing for, for disaster. It, for it to be an absolute clusterfuck, yeah. And it wasn't. It was it was it was forgettable. I wouldn't outs, say outs, there was maybe one or two things in there, but overall I thought it was kind of forgettable except for the fact that it was Elon Musk hosting. I didn't think it was forgettable, but I didn't think it was memorable. It was one of those meh episodes. Mm-hmm. If it was forgettable, it would be no, 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 because you're right. Uh, it can be memorable if it's an absolute clusterfuck <laughs> and just how bad it was. The Louise Lasser episode is all I will say. I, I love the, uh, let's take a look at some of the highlights of this season. And we just see Elon Musk in the, uh, in the Waluigi outfit just bopping around. And Cecily's like, wait, that's it? That's the only <laughs> thing we're getting? Oh, okay. <laughs> and... And honestly, I was like, that was, uh, that's a sketch that I thought was a good idea. Mm-hmm. But when you try to actually flesh it out, it I don't know if that actually worked or not. And that may be just me not being a video game guy. Probably. Um, okay. I thought it worked. Okay. It was funny as hell to me. Okay, then. That's, I was laughing my ass that's off. That's perfectly fair. That's always the the thing I come across when, you know, I'm talking with like people my age, people a little older who are always like, I watched Saturday Night Live back when so-and-so was on, and it's so much better then than it is now. And and I look at them and go, that's because you're not in the demographic that Saturday Night Live is shooting for. You are older now. You have aged out. Come to grips with it. Mm-hmm. And I watch it. There are some things I, I see where it's funny in the context of things, and I kind of learn about, you know, some things I'm not quite getting in pop culture, in my consumption of pop culture at age 52 and I go, Oh, okay. Okay. I get that joke. I see that joke. I at least see that joke and I see where it's funny or where they're coming from. And I understand though, that it's not supposed to be aimed for a 52 year old white divorcee sitting on his couch on a Saturday night. Cause he's got nothing else to do. <laughs> um, that's not their audience. And I'm fine with that. I will still watch it. You know, I'm, you know, I'll, sample the music if i'm re- watching it the next day on sunday i'll sample the music act and if it's not to my taste after a minute or so you know I'll give it a fast forward I-, I will admit this uh season finale of having um little nas x and uh apart from old town road i don't really know his music i know who he is mm-hmm. uh I thought his uh, Super Bowl commercial with Sam Elliott a year or two ago for Doritos was literally <laughs> the funniest thing I had seen come out of Doritos in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he killed that fucking performance. I, I was very impressed. I was like, "Call you me know, by your name, uh, Montero." I was like, "Whoa!" I'm not, you know, it's it's not my cup of tea for music. Uh, just you know, personal preferences. Mm-hmm. But I was impressed with the performance itself. I was like, that takes a lot of talent to do. That takes a lot of energy, a lot of creativity. And there's a there's a backstory to that particular performance that I found out like the next day. Um, They had about two weeks to put that together. And about a week out, one of the backup dancers got covid. So they had to get rid of all of the backup dancers and bring all new people in. And they had like three days to put that together. Wow. And they did that, and you saw what we saw, and it was just like, wow, mm-hmm. that was impressive. 
that I think that's kind of a microcosm or an exemplar of the Saturday Night Live model, anyways. Mm -hmm. That you only have a week to put on a show. Yeah. And yeah, some sketches are held over for a couple of weeks because it doesn't quite work in dress. And Lorne Michaels is like, go back and rework this. And they save that set Mm -hmm. for that in case they need it again. But so much of it, you know, starts off as an idea on Monday. Monday afternoon when they have a you know their first writers meeting or if it's Tuesday or whenever it is and then you know it's a mad dash to get it entirely you know ready to be on the air by Saturday night at eleven twenty nine p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so that this show has managed to do this for forty five years two varying degrees of success per season two varying degrees of success per episode even i would even that... say per cast well yes yeah because i think with some of the cast members being shuffled in and out like some are definitely more memorable than others mm-hmm. i mean steve martin technically isn't a cast member on snl but he should pretty much at this point be an honorary one because all of his sketches were genius Mm-hmm. When yeah. he was hosting, mm-hmm. I mean, people still quote two wild and crazy guys yeah. and King so, Tut and all that, mm-hmm. and those weren't, you know, he he wasn't part of the cast. He was just hosting. There's a lot of stuff over the years of Saturday Night Live that has just become part of the zeitgeist, either in the moment or continue to be. Wayne's World, for example, mm-hmm. um, Coneheads, the Coneheads. Dana Carvey's George Bush, not going to do it, impersonation. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm trying to think, you know, even even now, there hasn't been too many things that have kind of, like, broken through with that amount of punch. Not recently, no. Um, Dick in the Box, maybe? Maybe the last one? I don't know. And that's because, you know, we have traditional comedy here, and then we have... And comedy streaming on streamers. And um... I would definitely say that probably the last thing to break through the zeitgeist um, wasn't really so much like a like a big movie thing or like a line that people now quote. It's a whole character that people quote. Stefan. Dan Cortez. <laughs> I I love yeah, Stefan is probably my favorite character of the last twenty years. Twenty years of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh followed by Jebediah Atkinson. <laughs> Which next <laughs> um Pete Davidson just being Pete Davidson oh, yeah, when he Pete comes Davidson's off of the desk. A real close third. Yeah. Pete Davidson <laughs> Pete Davidson having troubles is <laughs> Again, and this is something we've talked about before. I am constantly amazed with how well he opens up his life and is brutally frank about it and still finds um, comedy within it. I I have to give him a lot of credit for that. His death piece in the uh, season finale was, during Weekend Update, was genius. That whole weekend update section was just a work of art. Like, it doesn't need to be touched. It stands out on its own inside the episode. Just put it separately. There are some people out there, though, who really just don't like Colin Jost, and I don't know why. The man's funny. The man's, he's not a great actor. So, yeah, keep him him out of sketches. 
he's the he's one of the head writers of the show. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he at least has a hand in half the sketches. When, you know, on the next day, I see on um, Twitter, you know, and like the SNL fans and uh, journalists that I follow, you know, there's always like a breakdown of who wrote what sketch, and Joe's name is on like four or five of them. <laughs> Uh, you know, in some form or another, you know, and there might be like three or four names on something. But, you know, if he wrote enough that, you know, he's getting official credit for it, you know, he has been shaping the show in certain ways. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't say, no, nah, yeah, he's not the greatest actor in the world. And that's coming from someone who's who has seen like the two films that he's put out this year. <laughs> One of them being Tom and Jerry. I, I I did like him in Coming to America too. It, it, that was so brief that um, I, I don't really think we could call that an acting role for him. That was more like a guest spot. <laughs> hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's telling the same n- nearly racist kind of things that Michael Che foists on him in Joke Exchange. I know it's adorable. And, and the acting comes from him not laughing. <laughs> not laughing at the ridiculousness of what he's being forced to say. So you have to give him credit. I do. I do. I do. <laughs> definitely. I, I, got, I got the biggest. He wasn't. He was terrible in Tom and Jerry. Like, I, I would say Rousey performance terrible. Ooh. However, I I like that he knew that the whole wedding section was a riff on Nick Jonas and uh, Priyanka Chopra Jonas. And they just took it, took the ridiculousness and ran with it. (laughs) And I think that's what kind of sells his character in that as being so terrible because Mm. he's almost aware of what they're doing. (laughs) And like, let's let's just make this as ridiculous as it can be. Mm Mm-hmm. And let's have fun with it. And that's kind of where I was just like, okay, this movie's not so bad because everyone's just having fun with it. Um, but yeah, he's he's not the greatest actor. But uh, if him and Che were to ever leave Weekend Update, I think I would be brokenhearted. Like I've gone back and tried to watch some of the stuff from the early aughts on Weekend Update when uh, was it uh, Tina Fey and. And then you had like Seth Meyers and mm-hmm. all that work in it, and it's just—it's it's a not different vibe. The, yeah, it's not the same vibe. There isn't that push and pull of you know. I'm not just trying to crack up the audience. Let's see if I can crack you up. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for Weekend Update when I'm watching us now. Yeah, there, there's a great dynamic there, and there's always been different dynamics when they've had two hosts for Weekend Update. I mean, obviously, the classic of Dan Aykroyd and um, Jane Curtin, you know, kind of felt almost antagonistic. And I think that's because Dan Aykroyd was adapting a character of, you know, a more, like, conservative, traditional newsman. And Jane Curtin was the more uh, progressive news person. And Dan Aykroyd's newsman character was like, how dare we let a woman in here? into the into behind the news desk and she's not cleaning the floor you know that, that kind of a thing he's very old school and then when they do the point counterpoint jane presents something and then dan immediately you know counters with jane you ignorant slut obviously but blah, 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 you know and there you know which is a classic <laughs> classic uh trope from the original cast yeah 
And so we had, yeah, we had that. And then we had a lot of like solo hosts, um, you know, uh, Charles Rocket, Brad Hall, Norm MacDonald. And, uh, and it wasn't until like more recently that they started to have two people back on the desk again. So they're going to play with those dynamics, and I, I do like the the dynamic that we have with Colin and Che, I yeah. think. I have a feeling Colin might be boogieing out in the next couple of years, because he's also been a part of SNL for almost nine or ten years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, And now that we're seeing him pop up in more film stuff, I, I have a feeling we're going to see him starting to get phased out. But... um. I will miss that. That's that's if um and and Che's got his TV show as well yeah. over on HBO. Mhm. Which which I do need to check out. I've heard good things. You have so many other things to finish <laughs> first. I know, like the new season of uh Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO. Which is also really good. I know. <laughs> he has such he has such an again, obsession folks. with comedy that his aversion to trying to finish the things that I give him that I'm like, hey, this is good, you should watch this, <laughs> and he'll he'll get a few episodes in or a season in and then bail and never come back to it because he finds other shiny op- comedy objects to go freaking watch. <laughs> Staged. Uh, you just finished Fleabag. Okay, I'll give you that one. Okay, thank you. I'll give Actually, you that staged one. staged is my next thing to kind of try to finish off. And then? Within the next couple of weeks. I don't know. Maybe the, the great. great. Thank you. Yikes. That's also I comedy. Get, I know. It's satirical comedy, I but know. it's comedy. I know. I liked it. And it's written by the guy who's worked with Yorgos Lanthimos. So <laughs> the favorite. I'm ex- yeah. So I do want to get back to it. It's just there's a lot of things going on. And uh, in a couple of weeks, I have Tribeca Film Festival. So I'm going to be watching a lot of stuff. So. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I looked at that lineup and I was just like. Nah. I know there's a lot of documentaries. and No, it's not docs. It's just it doesn't look like there's anything that's really going to jump out of there this year. I think actually with. And we're going to see this with uh, festivals for a little bit more. Um I think there's still a tendency to hold back some of the bigger indie stuff for a time when it's better with COVID and coronavirus, where you can have more people at a festival, where you can have more journalists on site rather than doing stuff, you know, virtually like I will be. Mm. And, you know, because that helps create bigger buzz and bigger uh, talk about your project, I think they're still kind of holding back on on a lot of titles, you know, no. distributors and stuff like that, and are looking towards, like, the fall. I think the fall is going to be nuts. Oh, fall definitely is going to be nuts. But I feel bad for Tribeca because they're celebrating their 20th anniversary mm-hmm. this year, and the only big thing that they were able to get was... In the Heights. In the Heights is going to premiere mm-hmm. at the festival. Yeah, on the 9th. Yeah. Um. So pretty much I think that might be their world premiere. Yeah. And we'll we'll be reviewing that in two weeks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's still a lot of like um, smaller things uh, that are going to be showing up at at Tribeca. I know there's a documentary on um, 
Larry Flint, the publisher of Penthouse, and his running for the presidency one year. Mm-hmm. Um, IFC has a couple of interesting uh, things in the lineup, including uh, The Beta Test, the new film from Jim Cummings. Um, okay. And there was something else. What was it? Uh, I'm, I, oh, Werewolves Within. And the, the trailer for that just dropped. And it's a comedy with uh, Melania, uh, Melania Traub and uh, Cheyenne Jackson. And it looked really funny. I was kind of impressed with that. And um, also, I think there was a documentary called Enemies of the State from IFC, which looked interesting. Um, a couple of smaller films, uh, Indian Sweet and, S- Sweet and Sugar, no, Sweet and Sour, or something like that, about um, an, a young Indian woman, or the daughter of a uh, Indian immigrant trying to make her way in uh, New York. Um, there's a few things that kind of caught my eye. So I, there's enough in there, and you know we'll have a lot of coverage of that over on Film Buff Online itself. But yeah, you're right, not like the big name films no that big name independent films that you kind of associate with a festival like tribeca Mm -hmm. and i mean i think the the honestly i think the selection is better than it was last year when they you know they had nothing last year and true and i still found a few good things in there but it was like i was literally just going okay I'm just going to watch something. And then I watched, um, what was it, 12-Hour Shift, I think it was called, about the nurse who, um, who, the nurse in the hospital who sneaks down to the morgue to steal organs to sell to a local gangster. And it turns into a black comedy. And um, I thought it was hilarious. I was like, wow. And at the same time, I'm like, wow, we're in a pandemic. Let's make a movie that kind of holds up... uh, first responders in a not very flattering light which i thought was a bold choice to uh maybe release that at that time but i enjoyed the movie and it did get a little bit of buzz on the on the horror film uh circuit so okay well maybe i was wrong and maybe there'll be a a lot more coming our way in the future and uh i'll definitely try to keep my eyes open but um, what you need to remember, hmm? yeah, I love saying that phrase to him. Because <laughs> she knows ultimately in 20 years my memory is going to go to hell. Exactly. But... <laughs> so I need to get it in while I can. Um, what you need to remember is the things that you see on the film festival circuit, keep up with them because... If it seems like they're going to fizzle out, they don't always. They get a new life somewhere else. Like One Night in Miami. Last year was getting... This is going to be you ragging on me because I still haven't watched it yet, isn't it? I wasn't going to go there, but now that you brought it up, I mean, okay, I guess that's permission. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I wasn't going to, but now that you brought it up, I guess that's permission. What I was going to say was (laughs) that once a film like One Night in Miami um, hits the festival circuit earlier on, it can generate a lot of buzz. Um, Like, this is one you need to watch out for come awards season. And then right before it releases, sometimes it can fizzle out. 
and it did get some traction on the red carpets for last year. It did uh, get several Golden Globe nominations, and it got a few Academy Award nominations. It didn't win for any of them. However, Criterion has decided to give it a new life and mm-hmm. release it through their collection, physical release. So Criterion has decided that this film is important enough to be preserved in their library and in their catalog. Um, that's not nothing. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, and uh, I often think, you know, that even like the smaller films at festivals that maybe don't have, you know, immediately recognizable names attached to mm-hmm. the cast list are still, you know, worth at least giving them a look. Because uh, you may see something that is going to explode. Or you may see something that, you know, it's the only film this person does, but it's really good. And for whatever reason, they don't get the breaks that they deserve for it. Because it's not a meritocracy out there, honestly. It's uh, half the times it's all based on luck. And so who knows? Maybe, you know, just giving them a great review for something and then they never go on to do anything else. Maybe that's something that still means something to them. Yeah. So they know, you know, it was all done and worthwhile. And, and yeah, keep an eye on it because you see someone who wasn't a big name at, you know, one point, And then because of work they do, whether it be the one you're watching or one from like a year now, you might see something and go, they're going to be big. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden they are. The gentleman from One Night in Miami who played Malcolm X. Not really a big name. Kind of known for smaller parts in uh, OA and um, Peaky Blinders. But because of his performance as Malcolm X, he has secured himself in the cast of Marvel's Secret Invasion. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, they saw something. (laughs) And Leslie Odom Jr.? He now has two Academy Award nominations to his credential list because of this movie. One for acting and one for songwriting. And hello, Knives Out 2. Here I come. Yes, true. (laughs) Very true. Okay. Uh, But on that note, though, we're going to take a brief pause uh, so we can reset our brains and get ourselves ready for our review of the new release this weekend of Cruella. So we'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. (laughs) In 1961, Walt Disney released the animated feature 101 Dalmatians, based on the Dodie Smith novel of the same name, published just a few years before. And in that film, audiences were introduced to Cruella de Vil, the evil woman who desired the spotted fur of the titular, rather large litter of puppies for her own nefarious ends. The film was a huge and much-needed hit, helping Disney recover from the financial slump that the studio was in following the much more modest box office returns for the far costlier Sleeping Beauty released two years earlier. But more than just saving the financial fortunes of the studio, the movie gave fans one of Disney's most iconic villains of its classic animation period. 
101 Dalmatians would become one of the first animated classics that Disney would plumb for a live-action remake in 1996 with Glenn Close as DeVille. Close would return for a sequel, 102 Dalmatians, in 2000, while the studio further exploited the property with a 2003 direct-to-video animated sequel titled Patch's London Adventure, and more recently, a new animated series for the Disney Plus streaming service titled 101 Dalmatian Street. And now this week, Disney shifts the focus off of the Dalmatians and onto their adversary, Cruella DeVille, in, appropriately enough, Cruella, a live-action prequel starring Emma Stone that attempts to get to the heart of why she has such a mad desire for Dalmatian fur. So, Natasha. Yes, darling. <laughs> oh, gosh. Here we go. Um, do you think this movie did a good job in making a puppy murderer into a sympathetic hero? No. Okay. I don't think she's supposed to be sympathetic. You're just following the journey. Whether or not you care about her at the end is going to be subjective to each person. Okay. So... You don't think the movie is trying to make her at least a little bit sympathetic? No. At all? Okay. All right. Because I know before this movie came out, literally the, earlier this week, we had discussions on the phone, you and I, about how they thread this needle. I, I knew they weren't going to mess with the dogs. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and they didn't. I was right. They didn't. <laughs> I have a couple of I have a couple of dog related things I want to get to, <laughs> but we will do that in a moment. Um, first off, but I think you love these characters just like you love Miranda Priestly in The Devil Wears Prada. You you love them, but you don't feel sympathetic for them. You think they're fun because they're they're absolute badasses, cruel, mm -hmm. but and that, and, they're good at what they do. And that's a tough. Uh, thing to balance and i think the they did it wonderfully and still being engaging that you want to in some way root for them mm -hmm. uh, now we talked about this a little bit uh like i was starting to say where i kind of tried to say is there a parallel here between seeing cruella from an innocent kid to an outright villain and paralleled to Anakin Skywalker being an innocent kid and becoming Darth Vader. Um, no, there isn't a parallel. You don't think so? No, because Cruella from the beginning has always been kind of a rebel, whereas Anakin had this right, I, I don't want to say self-righteous, but he wanted to change the world for good. Mm -hmm. Cruella was just like, this is what I want. This is my ambition. It, it's not it wasn't to do good for the rest of the world. It was she wanted to go against the grain of society. I don't think she wants to go. I don't think Cruella wants to go against the grain of society. She just wanted to be a fashion designer and make a splash and become famous. But she and then wanted she to do realized... that by standing out. And she did that as a kid. Mm -hmm. We see that from the moment she takes her her uh, her school uniform jacket, turns it on, uh, you know, inside out, puts it back on. And it was just like. Hi, I'm Estella, like walking up to people and they're just like, who let the skunk in the building? And she's just like, yeah, I don't need you. You know what? Fuck you. 
I'll fight you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is a rebel. Yeah, I, I will grant you that. But that rebellion, I think, ultimately leads to her downfall and the, and the need for revenge and revenge being a negative thing, as is Anakin's need to, you know, revenge him, revenge uh, his mother's murder at the hands of the Tusken Raiders and Attack of the Clones. And he goes and he takes his first big step towards the dark side by going and killing the entire village of Tusken Raiders, men, women, and children. I think there is... I mean, everybody... And everybody talks about him killing the younglings in uh, uh, Revenge of the Sith, but no one seems to give a shit about the fact that he killed children in uh, Attack of the Clones as well. Probably because we never even saw it. We just had to trust his word and... And uh, everyone shits on Hayden Christensen's acting for not being all that believable. Um, But I can see where there might be a slight parallel, Mm -hmm. but that is not the parallel I would make when I was watching this. I didn't even parallel it to anything else because I didn't feel like there was anything else to parallel it to. She doesn't kill. True. True. She caused, she doesn't she, cause genocide. No, she causes mayhem. But in a way that brings people to her, not in a way that pushes them away. And even up until the final moments of this film, you you don't have to kill her. You don't have to kill her. I'm not going to unless she makes me. Mm-hmm. And she never does. She gets her revenge by being cleverer. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that um, that's I, more important. I think Cruella does kill somebody, though. Herself. She, she kills Estella. Yeah. And again, that duality kind of makes me think of Anakin and Darth, uh, Darth Vader, and then Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, well, uh, Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker from a certain point of view, which is, you know, an often trashed line now because of how they retconned everything for the prequels. But I think there's that parallel there that the evil side overcame the good side of the person and became the dominant personality in I, a way. I mean, I think they're just a little bit more on the face about the Cruella killing Estella. Uh, all right. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that. I hate that you have to bring Star Wars into this. Why do you always have to bring Star Wars into I'm everything? I'm sorry. At least it wasn't Thin Man this time. I would have um, rather Thin Man. <laughs> god but um yeah i mean she does kill estella but she does have one thing right about this estella is too afraid to ever get anything done cruella definitely takes that that stance and does stuff i don't know i think it was estella who was actually the leader and uh the planner of a lot of those plans that happened between, like when she first falls in with uh, the two thieves, whose names I'm Jasper and Jas- Horace. Jasper and Horace, and you know, from when you know we get that time jump in the movie, I think a lot of that that happens over that time was is Estella's work, not Cruella's. I think Cruella was very deeply submerged until she makes that discovery that it was the Baroness who sicked the dogs on her mother. Which forced her mother over the cliff. The- Which, by the way, 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of goofy. What? Um, the dogs? The fact that the dogs, you know, pushed the mother over. The, it felt like we have to get Dalmatians into this somehow, and we have to make Dalmatians traumatic to her. And then the movie goes around and makes her befriend the dogs and seem like everything's cool at the end with her and Dalmatians. And then the Cruella side. I, I don't quite get what they were trying to do with that. It seemed to be at odds with each other. No, I I, I didn't see the dogs as traumatic to her. I think it was the event that was traumatic, not so much the dogs. Then why include Dalmatians? Why make those the dogs that push the mother over the cliff? It it seemed like it was unnecessarily forcing Dalmatians into this story where it maybe didn't need. Because I've actually heard some things over over time where, you know, as a kid, um, like I really wanted a Dalmatian because I watched 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) But I was actually told as a kid that they're in that group along with like Pipples. They can get extremely vicious true and so and that's why they've been associated with fire trucks because back in like the late 1800s mm-hmm. uh fire departments would often get into fights with each other as to who was able who was to be allowed to yeah. put a fire out we saw that in gangs in new york i remember and um that's why they got dalmatians on their trucks as guard dogs yeah and um uh, yeah so i i think not only is the symbolism you know, important to have something that links to 101 Dalmatians. But that stigma of because of that animated feature that Dalmatians are absolutely adorable and they make for great house pets can be misleading. So showing them that that they are guard dogs and they are ferocious mm-hmm. um, was a nice switch for this film. I guess, but I, it just felt like it just felt like um, you know, it just kind of felt to me like they were shoehorning in um, Dalmatians just to have a Dalmatians in there. It just now, felt odd and it, unbalanced. It made sense for me to to okay. see them, and then showing that her control is so much stronger at the end. Mm-hmm. That they now answer to a new mistress, um, I, I, I thought was really important to see. Because she knows that she is definitely playing with fire at that end. Everything can go wrong and she could end up dead. Because you don't know how they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. So she is betting everything on, yes, I'm calling the dogs to me, but if she releases them and they don't answer because I I haven't had a strong enough control over them in the last couple, you know, months that I've been working with them versus, you know, years under their previous mistress, I'm screwed. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be a case of they might push me over. It might be a case of they tear me apart. So she's really, you're really betting on whether or not she has control of those dogs, just like the way she has control over so many other things in her life. Okay. Well, let me, let me posit this to you then. Mm-hmm. Take the Dalmatians out of the scene where the Baroness basically murders mm-hmm. Estella's mother by having her pushed over the cliff um, and have the Baroness do it herself. 
okay? Does that not raise the tension then of the scene at the end where Estella is with her on that same spot? where And the Baroness goes, let me give you a hug. And as you're watching it as the movie exists now, you're kind of like, well, this doesn't seem like no. a smart move. No, it, it doesn't ratchet, work. It would ratchet up the tension no, even more. No, it doesn't more. work. You don't, you don't think it would ratchet up the tension no. more? Why? Because then we would never see her connection with Horace and Jasper as Estella ever because all those years of wanting to be a fashion designer, wanting to be like the Baroness, she never blamed the Baroness for her mom's murder until she saw the necklace and then she started piecing things together. So all of Mm -hmm. those years where she just wanted to work along this great designer, all of that would be gone. There no. would be no Estella. No. Well, no. She would. She would still want to. She. She wanted to be a designer before her mom died. That's when they were talking about going. But that on was the still car. Estella. Yeah, and she would still be Estella through all of that. It's not. It, there's nothing about the Dalmatian murder. Yeah, you know, the Dalmatians as the killer that makes her Cruella. It's there's the dogs nothing. doing it, not the Baroness. She doesn't put two and two together with the Baroness until later on. Yeah. If she knew you that, still from, do that that way though. But if she knew that from the beginning, it doesn't make any sense. She didn't recognize the Baroness at first. She didn't recognize the Baroness until she saw the necklace. And then when she put it together. So you could still have it as just shooting from the back like they do. Because they don't reveal really the, the face of the woman who the mother is talking to. Until like she has that, oh my God, that moment. The moment when she sees the, uh, the Baroness with the necklace is when she makes the connection with the faces because she had submerged all of that before. So I, so whether you have the dogs kill them or not, I still think you're able to um, – you, you still have that same path for the character. It's not until she sees the necklace on the Baroness that she puts it together that – Oh my God! The Baroness was that woman in the shadows that night who was there and summoned the dogs that killed my mother. I disagree. I think she sort of knows whose party she was at the entire time because of Mark Strong. She's been working alongside Mark Strong and the Baroness for months, and you're telling me you don't recognize the man who tried to take you out of the party as a kid? No, it doesn't work. I. She also sees the Dalmatians. Okay. You, she knows you do, have the, a, you do have a point there. And the, um, and the Dalmatians. She sees them. Then, then why does the movie make such hay out of the necklace and the fact that that's when she pieces it all together? She, if she had known about it beforehand— I th- Because movie... she had internalized everything and she had taken the death so much onto herself that she thought it was an accident, that she caused the death— and therefore, it was an accident. The dogs were coming for her, not for her mom. So the Baroness was just happened to be standing there at that time. Okay, okay. I, I see your point. I see your point. I, I think there maybe have, should have been ways that they could have written around that to stage all of this without the dogs. I, I'm, I'm but... perfectly okay with the dogs. Okay. Okay. Um, the only other thing I had a problem with the dogs is at the end, you know, they hint like one's, hey, is, you know, one of the dogs getting fat. Yeah, I noticed. Puppies. Like, 
pregnant, and the two of the puppies are the parents of the dogs in 101 Dalmatians. They're given to Roger and um, Anita. And Anita. And I'm like, wait a minute. So Cruella sends one puppy to Anita, one puppy to Roger. They get together, and the puppies as adult dogs mate. Aren't they kind of inbreeding? I mean, probably. Yeah. But that, that's that, if they do I mean, that. Yeah, it, well, it's always the assumption that the two dogs in 101 Dalmatians are the parents of all the 101 puppies. Yeah, but it's also so, the assumption that Anita worked for Cruella as a fashion designer before leaving to get married. They, I think you they, need to take that story with a grain of salt they're here. They're by named. They're named here, though. They're named Genghis. The actual names of the dogs in 101 Dalmatians that father the puppies or mm-hmm. they birth the puppies are Pongo and Perdita. And those are the names on the cards that Anita and Roger receive in the post credit sequence. I didn't even see that. Okay. I did. I, there, I, there, I, I left during the post credit. Wait, there was a post credit? Yes. Okay, I left there... I left before that because I was trying to make a table reservation <laughs> at a restaurant. I'm sorry. I missed no, it. Okay. Oh, okay. So you don't even know what I'm referencing. There is literally no. a post-credit sequence, spoilers, um, where both Anita and Roger receive a box with um, a big, big box with uh, the oh, House dude. of Cruel de Villa uh, logo on it. Oh. They open it up, and each one gets a Dalmatian puppy. And it's like, Wait, dear Roger, here, you know, Roger a, the lawyer. Yeah, because we see we see him trying to pi- uh, play the piano and write a song. Huh. Oh shit! I never even put together <laughs> that Roger the lawyer is the Roger who's with Anita. Oh my god, I'm a moron. That's because they gave him a big stupid beard in the movie. No, it's because they made him a lawyer. Well, yeah. Well, he quits <laughs> law to become a. There was there was some kind of. Thing about him saying, "I'm not even. Re- I don't even really want to be a lawyer." There was some really throwaway line about that that I thought pianos hinted. are good. Pianos are nice. Yes. <laughs> um. So so basically, like Roger picks it up. And is like, you know, here's here's you know, thank you for your help. Here's you know, here's a gift for you. His name is Pongo or whatever. What is on each of those cards? But they they gave those puppies name the names. In, oh, okay. in that credit sequence, and and I'm sitting there, and like most people, had bailed out because it was like, it wasn't that deep into the credit sequence. But you know, if you guys were on your way out to, uh, we were running out during like the art display. Yeah, yeah, like we were, we were really trying to make that reservation. I'm so sorry, no, 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 I no, missed no, no, it. No, 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 that's okay, that's okay. Well, now I'll have to go back again and see it. I, I really enjoyed <laughs> this movie. I want to go back. Anyway, I think I we're didn't... getting so much into the dogs yeah, that we're missing a lot yes. of everything else. Yes. So let's yes. talk a lot of everything else. Okay, go. You first. Um, I really thought Emma Stone's performance was fantastic in this. And it's hard to get close to Glenn Close. And uh, I'd say she did mm-hmm. just that. There, there was definitely a bit of influence there. But I think she kind of made it her own as well. She really did. And mm-hmm. I, 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 loved, I loved her performance. Especially because she was... I got from the way the timeline was presented. Mm-hmm. And I have a... I have a stick in my craw about that um that when we see the bulk of the movie Mm -hmm. 
uh, Cruella slash Estella. They're like 20, 21, 22. I would, th- th- I would say about that, okay. yeah. So, bless her, Emma Stone is playing down in age, and she does a good job of it. I, there was one or two points I'm like, ooh, this is, a, it's sweat hog syndrome, you know, where you have 30-year-old actors playing high schoolers, yeah. like on Welcome Back, Cotter. I've always called it sweat hog syndrome. There are so and many actors of, who still do that. A couple of moments where I was just like, nope. <laughs> um, but overall, you know, just in terms of the performance itself, outside of, you know, her physical looks, which is just, you know, not a thing to worry about. I thought she did a fantastic job. There was definitely one particular scene that jumped out at me, and I just couldn't stop staring at it going, wow, so many nuances in this one scene. And it's where she um, she goes to the fountain the, the last time, and she's talking to the fountain. Great. That was such a good sequence. You know what it kind of reminded me of? And I, our audience isn't really going to understand this because they weren't there <laughs> for it. But when we put on that play of Medea mm-hmm. last year, and Beth does her marriage to the night uh, at the end of right before everything goes to hell, um, that's what that reminded me of. It was okay. this kind of, it's so subtle what Emma is doing here. But if you look at her eyes and you're looking at her um at her like facial facial muscles and all that it's just stunning the tension that is here or the pain that is there and i was i was fucking blown away by it i'm like this is why she is such a good actress is do, because of things like this do you know what my thought was in that moment hmm? well if she gets nominated this is the clip they show yeah because it was great yeah and if they if Disney were to push for a best actress an awards something? campaign on this movie, which maybe, maybe not. That's what you. Sh- that's that's the that's clip the scene. you send to everybody. Literally, I, I I was watching that going. You're you don't really see a lot of um, awards nominations for Disney films like ever in mm-hmm. acting categories um, because they don't really give you a lot of meat to work with. Mm-hmm. But it felt like with this film, yes, there is montages and there is, you know, such eye candy and all that. But there's also a deep emotional root to it that they ratcheted everything back in that one scene. There's no dialogue. There's no music. There's no multi-camera angles. It is literally just the one camera sitting on her for almost four minutes. While she does this monologue. And it broke my fucking heart to watch. And and I, I saw her giving it. Giving. She, she f- may have physically killed Estella later on. That was the moment she really killed Estella. Yeah. That's her moment where we see her become Cruella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, and not just in a physical standpoint. But in a mental and emotional standpoint. She absolutely destroyed Estella in that moment. And I could see Emma Stone reading this whole script and going, this is the scene I want to do. Let's do this movie. Yeah. But the thing is, is she was attached to it for four years before the script was done. 
Well, they probably they you know, went, had versions of it, or they said, you know, they, this is, she said this is the point she said to Variety happen. that she she had been attached for the last four years, mm-hmm. and she had seen every like iteration that this had, script had gone through before it landed on this, which has been a lot. Yeah, um, and she said that some of the the backstories that they had in mind were a lot darker than this. I want to read those scripts now. <laughs> because this is fucking dark. Yeah. This, this film is uh, da- the darkest film I think I've ever seen Disney do. And, and All right, maybe not ever. But like since like the 70s and 80s when they were <laughs> testing out horror. Yeah. The, literally, when Estella's mother goes over the side of the cliff. I went, oh, fuck. I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I said that out loud to the point where the person who was sitting next to me, you know, like three seats down. Had kids? Because, uh, yeah, no, that, I no, ran into that problem. No, they did have kids, but uh, <laughs> they, I heard them chuckle at my, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've forgotten. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I'm back at the theater. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I, I did that, too. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh, I mean, holy let, Let's face it. Disney is no stranger to mom murder. Okay. No, but all the way back to Bambi, for goodness sake. Yeah, but it's often done off screen, or like they in find them in the aftermath, or, yeah. or like with Mufasa, it, we don't really witness like the act of the death. We see the before and we see the after of it. Never take your mom to the movies on Mother's Day if you're going to see a Disney film. <laughs> is what I'm Christ. saying. <laughs> but um, this was like fucking brutal like the the shot of the dogs going over the top of estella run then, run run and then jump pa- like and, and just the camera moves with them yeah and wham right into the chest of the woman she goes over the back and we see her plummet yeah into the ocean and you're like wow um no, no coming back from that no. <laughs> no there is not and i was just like oh f- fuck me okay we're in for a ride <laughs> um can we talk about the supporting characters yes. for a second yes please. jasper and horace often seen in all the different iterations as just absolute bumbling idiots mm-hmm. horace more so um but bumbling idiots period uh in the live action in the 90s was played to perfection by hugh laurie and uh mark williams Still bumbling idiots. Yes. Well, honestly, putting house aside, if you if you need a bumbling idiot, Hugh Laurie is who you call. Mark Williams I, did I, even more I say so that, that as yeah. a longtime Black Adder fan, though. Oh, God, yeah. Hugh Laurie is fantastic. <laughs> um, but here, they really kind of instilled them with more wit and love. Mm-hmm. I, I like that there was a particular scene where... Uh, Corella mentions these are my family and they're going to be staying a while and they they're angry at her because they've completely she's just completely talked down to them and overlooked them for so long and uh, they're look at each other and they're like did she really just play the family card <laughs> yeah and it's working okay what do you want <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, that moment of these are my family and she doesn't say that snarkingly that is absolutely sincere yes so i mean she for a while there thinks of them as henchmen 
but you also see that they are friends. They are family. And she respects them. I wouldn't say as equals, but as close to equals as you can get in the eyes of her. Mm -hmm. And definitely, I mean, you need to have that loyalty bond there Mm -hmm. because they do a lot of stuff that they wouldn't have done otherwise, I think. Yeah, like she's just asking them to just flat up do stuff and they're like, okay, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're taking out the loyalty stuff and it's just we're just henchmen unless you're paying me why the hell am i doing it for you and because she doesn't have that kind of bond there with money being the currency in which you are loyal to me but i i think she proves that loyalty back to them as well oh yeah um and paul michael hauser is so good here um it kind of reminds me of his character from Itanya, but he's instilled um, a, a lovable uh, element into it mm-hmm. where it's just like, yeah, you're goofy, but you're also... His character here is smarter. Yeah, he's smarter, but he's also filled with so much heart. Yeah, and Itanya, he you know, was like, I'm a terrorism expert. <laughs> and, and you look at him, you're like, no, you're no, not. You're not. <laughs> This guy says, you know, he knows things. You're like, yeah, I, I, I see that in your eyes that despite your appearance, you do have hidden depths. And yeah. I don't mean that as like a fat joke. No. Um, <laughs> well, if anyone's suited to make it. Oh, wow. That's hurtful. <laughs> All right. With Jasper. Um, I was afraid that they were going to play the love interest card. Because he does things like sneaking Estella's application into Liberty Department store um, just so he can give her a shot. Mm-hmm. Because she is so... I, I, And that's where I would say that Estella doesn't get things done is because this is a desire, but she doesn't reach out and do anything to try to take it. Jasper did that for her. And I was so afraid that they were going to play the, the romantic, oh, he's a love interest, all that. And... There were definitely times where I saw it, and then there were times where I saw older brother. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very fine line to walk between the two. I'm wondering now, as you bring this up, if there wasn't an earlier draft of the script where maybe that was more pronounced. Yeah. And they pulled it back and said, no, let's make this family, not anything else. Yeah, I remember um, we were sitting in the theater, and Riss looked at me. I, I went to see it with my girlfriend, Riss, and uh, she... <laughs> She looked at me and goes, why did they make Jasper cute? I'm I'm like, <laughs> and you're telling me he wasn't in the 96 version with Hugh Laurie playing Jasper? And she's like, okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely can see that conversation happening. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I really enjoyed that family aspect mm-hmm. of it. Um, the question is, will if they continue this on and do a sequel... Um, will they be able to keep that up? Um, I don't know if I want a sequel to this. I think it just works on its I, own. I think it works on its and own, yeah. any sequel kind of pushes it closer towards the 101 Dalmatian story, where we need Cruella de Vil to be an absolute fucking lunatic. Yeah. And sociopath. And I think Emma they, can do that, but... I, I think she could, but I think the, the film kind of ends with like a nod that she's going in that direction. 
but it still ends with everybody in a good place with each other. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, the way they've kind of created these actual emotional internal lives for these characters, that at some point, she's just going to start treating them like shit. And the way we've seen them now, they'll bolt. At some point, they're just going to decide... This is not worth it. She's too far gone. We can't save her. Yeah, and they did. There were definitely moments where that water was tested. Yes. In this, particularly when she breaks them out of jail, and she's like, you know, get in, get, you'll give you a ride home, and she, and they're like, no, we're done with you. Whatever. No, you need to know this. So and so is my mom. Okay, my mind is literally blown. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which which sort of makes me think, is this truly a prequel to 101 Dalmatians, or is this a kind of like alternate universe story I that took kind it of as alternate veers universe. away from what actually happens, what we see in either the live action or the animated version? I think it's it's origin. It's but an origin it story that is, veers it, away and says, yeah. but for the grace of God, she could have gone this other horrible way. Yeah, I... I no, I think she's still going to end up at Insane. that point. Yeah, I think she's still going to end up there. But the points that she hits in order to get there, I think, might be different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if she gets to that point where we see her at the beginning of 101 Dalmatians mm-hmm. and starts getting insane and wants to kill puppies, I would like to see the movie that takes what we've seen before mm-hmm. in this movie and then takes her on a different journey in that in that story and doesn't end the same way one of the things i noticed uh with this and i'm gonna start going into costuming and fashion because uh Mm -hmm. that plays a very important part in this story indeed is that cruella Deville, in general has always been obsessed with fur always been obsessed and with the exception of the coat that everyone thinks is made out of real Dalmatian fur, we never once see her in fur, ever. Yes, I did note that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of great fabrics and a lot of great costuming. Again. Costuming deserves third billing on this movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, if Disney really puts an awards push on this film they damn well better have the costuming front and center oh god yeah there's some great stuff in there uh when she first shows up on the back of the motorcycle and takes off it and we've seen this shot in like trailers and stuff where her face is like spray painted across with the words the future on it Mm -hmm. but we only ever saw from like the the shoulders up when you actually get the full look, oh, and and it's only there for like some of those great costumes are only there for like a minute or two. I know. Um, Emma Thompson and Emma uh, Emma Stone both said that their favorite costume was the one where she gets dumped out, out of, of the, the garbage, garbage truck. truck, and and it's slowly revealed that all those bags of garbage are actually the train for yeah. this immensely long dress. And I she, loved it. That was never seen until the day that they shot it. Emma Thompson says that took my breath away and it was hard to keep serious because that wasn't <laughs> CGI. 
that train was real and they really did take off that fast and that train did that wave. Ugh. To actually see that in person, mm -hmm. I probably would have lost my shit. I, I probably <laughs> would have fainted. But um, there's one where she steps up on the top of the Baroness's car and flings this huge like red and pink and black tulle skirt over and she has this military jacket. And her hair is done up into this weird like crown on the top of her head. If you look at the shoulders of the military jacket, it has like carriages and horses on it. Mm -hmm. And like there's just so much good detailing in every single costume. By the way, I want her tie that is made out of just like metal bars and beads that we see on Estella. Like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be the easiest tie to put on in the morning. Just slip it over my head. Mm -hmm. Um. But there's just like so many fantastic pieces in this. It really does. I can see where they took influence, particularly for the Baroness. She's very kind of 50s Christian Dior. She likes things that are sculpted. Um, whereas you're looking at Cruella's style of you know, punk 70s, kind of Vivian Westwood when she first opened her 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 line and her couture and i was I, I was in heaven yeah i I was very much <laughs> enthused by the punk aesthetic that was in the in her design yes i really like that and i know it's a fictional universe but i almost wish we had seen her like meet up with like uh, malcolm mclaren the guy who was uh the the svengali who put the sex pistols together yes because he started off uh like owning a clothing store and a boutique and was creating fashion and stuff like that too. So I could see where th that little bit of punk history maybe have informed the character here a bit. How did you like the Ziggy Stardust on art? <laughs> oh my God. Artie Ziggy Stardust. Yes. And he had attitude to go with it. And I was just like, yes, and now give me more. He was what? The third or the fourth first openly gay character in a new in a Disney film. <laughs> yeah, right. Cause it, it seems like every other Disney film, there's like, oh, we have our first gay character. Because guest, uh, what's his Gaston's friend that um, in uh, the live action Beauty and the Beast was. Supposed they to actually be, had then... to state that um, LeFou was. Yeah. Here, I think you know he is, but because we're not seeing anything that can be construed that way, uh, he's going to get a pass in other yeah, countries. He, he's coded. He's, he's coded. coded a bit. Yeah. But just enough that... It was the wink. 70s. We, yeah. can, we can... You can give a wink, but not an outright nod. Yeah. Um, Dis Disney's still not going to have an outright gay character um, because, you know, they want the film to show in China. Oh, and in Russia as well, where it's mm -hmm. still illegal. But no, that that was fantastic. And the music, there was some really, really great music in this movie. Oh God, um, you had a you had a I, face. Okay, I will not disagree that there was a great amount of. I, I will not disagree with you that all the song choices used in this movie were, you know, they were all great songs. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I. I'm going to question the need for so many needle drops like that, though. It seemed like, remember how annoying it got in like the first 15 minutes of the first Suicide Squad movie where there was just constant needle drops and a different song and a different song and a different song and a different yeah, song? Yeah, no, I agree. It felt like that throughout this whole movie. Really? It, I got more of a Baby Driver inspo from this. Baby Driver, the songs were integral 
to the story itself because of his love of music. Here it just okay, felt like, yeah, oh, hey, sense. we like this song. Let's drop it in here and use it to score a 35-second piece where she's driving away from something. And like when they do the one thing and then they steal the one car. Yeah. That it, was um, it, it didn't need that was queen. I, yeah. Something about uh, hold on. Give me a sec. Uh, that was Stone Cold Crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was a, it's a which is a great song. I don't think we definitely needed it there, though. I don't th- you know, just them like driving away and, I, and then having like a couple of moments of whoops, she can't drive really well. And then they pull over and have a discussion. I think it sort of works. A little. And the way that it works as in her brain is just going ape shit at that moment. You know how some people say, you know, when I'm upset or I'm emotional, I go driving and it steadies me. Well, what happens if you get someone behind the wheel whose brain is absolutely going fucking nuts and you they don't know how to drive? Um, I think Stone Cold Crazy is a good way to emphasize what's going on inside the head and i like that later on when she jumps on the back of the the bike we don't have that Mm -hmm. it's like okay she's hitting a pinnacle here but here is where her real moment of reflection and depression comes in and we don't need music for that true i i just thought there was a like a lot Mm -hmm. of needle drops there was there was and maybe, and you know, without going back and rewatching it, and then, uh, you know, writing down every one, and then kind of going, okay, we, ha- the music budget was slashed by a third. We got to take a third of these songs out. Which ones would you take out? I don't know. I can't answer that. I'm right leaving now in without- five to one by the Doors because Emma Thompson's uh, <laughs> entrance to that <laughs> song was like. And if you could see my face right now, this is where we need video podcasting. It was my eyes just went wide and I was like staring like, wow. (laughs) Um, And I want to be your dog in the fashion show that she puts on across the street. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fuck yes. (laughs) So overall, I really love this movie. Um, there is definitely something I really want to mention, and I was okay. thinking about it on the drive over here. This film is a metamorphosis story. It is an origin story. We start to see a, a change from you know one character to another. But there was also a lot of um, allegories to that in this story. Okay. <laughs> no, go on. The... Being tied up in a house that is burning down. Everyone thinks you're dead, rising from the ashes like a phoenix. And at first, the beads on that dress, you knew I was going. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. I thought those were butterflies at first. Because at first, I actually, at first, I thought they were bats. Then I thought they were butterflies when I saw the one land on her shoulder. And I'm like, oh, they they went with a nice metamorphosis thing and then you see the damage in the vault and you're like oh shit they were moths she's not a butterfly she's a moth she you know consumes consumes and destroys and creates yeah and i i thought that was genius to put that in there oh yeah it's it's literally the metamorphosis story gone wrong 
You don't which come is, out a beautiful butterfly. You come out an all-consuming moth. Yeah. I love that. And and the metamorphosis story gone wrong is Cruella's story. Yeah. So. And there there was just some really good nuances and. Uh, uh, by the way, Emma Thompson said that she took influence on her character from Joan Collins and Dynasty. <laughs> and I was just like, Seems that fair. is good. <laughs> <laughs> but I think on that note, though, that's going to wrap us up for this week. Oh, I could keep talking about this movie all day. I know, but Time I've got to go, sh- uh, wh- go edit this thing, though. You're That's saying I have to go edit and you have to go shopping. <laughs> got it. Oh, wait. I didn't say anything about shopping for you. <laughs> <laughs> this movie makes me want to redo my wardrobe. Oh, God. Yes. We didn't even. Oh, boy. <laughs> and <laughs> I really want that red hair. <laughs> I really want that red hair that she has, too. Oh, I don't think I could pull off the skunk look. No, but yeah, you could pull off that that red hair. Mm, yay. Okay. I'll talk to uh, HR tomorrow. <laughs> See if I can get away with it at work. All right. Well, remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with more news and a retro review of Run, Lola, run. Another redhead. Yes. It's a thief. Oh, darling. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. Cruella DeVille, Cruella DeVille. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her is to take a sudden chill. Cruella.